Right, morning all. Uh, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're, this is the last in a mini-series we're doing on Matthew uh, chapters 1 and 2, uh, where we've been looking at Jesus, the God-man. Um, it's the last in our mini-series, and the next week we've got uh, Mike Betts, um, who's one of the leaders of the Relational Mission Family of Churches, and the founder of it is going to come and be with us, which we're really looking forward to. And then the week after that, we're going to start a new Sunday series uh, called Discover Life. Um, it's going to focus on what the future has for us at New Life, what we feel God has in store for us. We're going to unpack our big aim for our life together and Jesus' mission here to, um, and, and what he has for us. And we're going to consider what it means to be a part of his church. So that's going to be the next series. We're really looking forward to that, Discover Life. Um, on the 25th of September, we're going to kick off that series just by digging into four key and significant changes uh, we're looking to make in uh, the coming kind of season. So um, do be there for that. It'll be a slightly different morning to kind of what's typical, kind of be outlining for us specifically as a church. I mean, um, feel free to continue to invite friends and family along, but just so you're aware, that'll kind of be a bit of a focus on us specifically as a church and where uh, God's got us headed. Um, I just wanted to highlight to you Lowestoft Living Word. Um, there's going to be uh, these flyers um, at the back on the table over there when I remember to put them on them. Do you mind going? Thanks. Um, they look like this. It's focused on Matthew 8. It's called The Call of the King, The Costly Call to Follow Christ in Matthew 8. So from the 18th to the 20th of October, there's meetings in the evenings from half seven to nine at Christchurch in Lowestoft. Uh, we're going through Matthew, so we thought it'd be quite a helpful complement um, to what we're uh, looking at here. So if you're interested in that, there's some flyers at the back. You can grab one and head along to those meetings. Grand. Um, as we look ahead to King Charles's uh, reign... Um, let's uh, dive into this passage that we've got this morning. Is there a, like a flicker? Yeah, great. Um, let's dive into this passage uh, this morning and just have a look at King Jesus's humble example to us and see what we can learn and what the new king, uh, King Charles, can learn from King Jesus. So we're in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. It says this, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But uh, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And this is our focus for this morning, this verse that really kind of stuck out, uh, stood out to me. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And what that's speaking about is that Jesus fulfills this Old Testament promise of this promised king who would be a humble king. You might have heard that uh, passage in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says this, that behold, your king's coming to you. This is before Jesus arrived. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And then what does Jesus do the week before he's crucified? He rides on into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we celebrate that on Palm Sunday, as it's traditionally called, um, when people lay down palm leaves on the ground. We 
kind of recognize and celebrate Jesus as, uh, as our humble king and his entry into Jerusalem. So how does Jesus fulfill this Old Testament promise of this king who's coming, who is going to be a humble king? Well, first, um, this humble king is despised. Uh, the response to the queen's uh, death this week has been uh, one of sadness, hasn't it, of grief. I mean, we fill it with varying degrees, don't we? And some of us uh, may be feeling it significantly, others of us possibly not so much. But the eulogies rightly have been quite warm, haven't they? They've been uh, full of reverence and respect and full of honour for a monarch um, who's served as she has. But the passage that we read this morning tells us that Jesus wasn't afforded the same um, throughout his life. Uh, when I was uh, in U- Uganda, some of the lads on the football team that I was coaching came from, some of them came from a town called Wairaka, and then there was uh, some of them who came from a small village called Namazeba. And Namazeba was notorious for thieves, um, for gambling, for drunkenness, and there'd been murders there in the past as well. And Namazeba had another name for it that was a bit more derogatory, and it was Chikuku. And some of the players used to taunt one another. So if one of the lads from Wairaka wanted to have a go at uh, one of the village boys from Namuziba, who they kind of looked down on a little bit, they would, they would call them Chikuku as a kind of derogatory uh, term, kind of looking down their nose at them. And when it says in verse 23 that he shall be called a Nazarene, it's not a quote from the Old Testament, but it's a summary of an Old Testament theme that the promised king would be despised and rejected. And so Nazarene is like a put-down. It's like name-calling. It's a term of abuse and ridicule. And we kind of see this promised about the Messiah throughout the whole of the Old Testament. So have a listen to this. You know, on the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's doing there is he's applying Psalm 22 to himself uh, in his death. And Psalm 22 says this, But I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. Uh, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Listen to this in Psalm 69. Similarly, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. I became a byword to them on the talk of those who sit at the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. Isaiah 53. He is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus' life was uh, one of being put down, of called names, because he was from Nazareth. It wasn't a glamorous place to be from. He was ridiculed, abused, despised and mocked. And that's what his death was like as well, wasn't it? In Matthew 23, we hear about Jesus' death on the cross. and, And what do we hear? That they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And together twisted a crown of thorns on him, mocked him as a kind of mock king. They put it on his head, they put a reed in his hand as a pretend staff, and kneeling before him, they said, all hail, king of the Jews. And they mocked him. They spat on him, they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him and stripped him, they took off the robe, put back on his own clothes and led him away to be crucified. I mean... Whether we're a Christian or not, hearing somebody being treated like that is difficult to hear, isn't it? Those passages are difficult to read of. Because we all acknowledge within us a little bit of a sense of the need for approval and of acceptance. 
um, in order to flourish. You think about um, sports. And when a sportsman is playing, the cheer and encouragement and approval and acceptance of the crowd is part of what buoys an athlete into life. You think of like Wimbledon when Murray's playing and he's kind of giving it all this to the crowd and they're responding. There's a kind of atmosphere that encourages and enables him to flourish as a player. You can see it when you're watching football players play. You know, when the crowd are singing their name and singing songs about the team, it brings a certain atmosphere that lifts them and encourages them to be all that they're capable of being as football players. And it's the same for us as humans in life, isn't it? We need encouragement. We need acceptance and approval in order to flourish as human beings. Culturally, we often hear this, don't we, that um, the advice of accepting ourselves as we are. And we often search for acceptance from our peers and maybe approval from a boss or a role model or a a family member. And our humble uh, King Jesus is deserving of not only eternal acceptance and approval, but of praise and worship and adoration as we've been giving him this morning. For he was despised and rejected by people. Why did he endure that? Why did he go through all that? He went through all that so that we could be approved of and accepted by God. I I don't know about you, but I've I've done things that couldn't be approved of, that aren't acceptable um, at times, and I deserve disapproval and rejection. But the good news is that if we place our faith in Jesus and trust him, then Jesus exchanges the disapproval and rejection that you and I deserve for his commendation from God. And he swaps them. He goes, hey, that, that disapproval and rejection that you deserve and that's yours, here, I'll have it. He takes it on himself. He lives this kind of life and dies that kind of death. And instead he gives us the commendation, the approval of the Father that he's had from eternity and says, here, have that. That's yours. The Old Testament um, heroes that are talked about in Hebrews 11, verse 2, it talks about them being commended, approved by God um, because of their faith. And because of our faith in Jesus, God has gifted, which God has gifted to us, God commends us and approves us and says we're acceptable. One writer uh, I was reading this week says this, being commended or approved by God is actually our greatest human need. But this approval is not something superficial, like a round of applause or a like on Facebook. This word commended conveys the idea of a conclusive legal defense in court. If God testifies that we are acceptable to him, then our access to the blessings of his presence are secured forever. That means that legally in God's court, With him as the judge, he accepts us. He approves of us because of what Jesus has done for us. And what does does this mean then if we live constantly before this sense of approval and acceptance by God the Father? What does this mean for our lives? It means we don't need it from anywhere else. The writer goes on and says this, Indeed, when we know we're accepted and cherished by God, we can endure the rejection and scorn of others instead of desperately chasing their approval. 
So a humble king is despised. How else does Jesus uh, fulfill this promise of a humble king? Secondly, he's accessible to the lowly. Our new king, Charles III, has been the longest serving heir apparent. He's been trained for 73 years for what he's just taken on, equipped with royal training, prestigious education, military background and experience, and he's the patron president or member of over 400 charities. And on the Queen's death on Thursday, he became king to the surprise of nobody because he'd been prepared for it all his life and we knew it was coming. In contrast, Jesus seems to have appeared from nowhere as a very unlikely king. You think about like the circumstances of his birth and his early life that we've been reading about in Matthew. It's unceremonious, unlike the coronation will be, and it's apparently insignificant in comparison to the big headlines that we've had um, the past few days. Jesus was born to a pregnant teen mum, an unexpected pregnancy, born to a young, engaged, but unmarried couple, no public heralding of his arrival. He's born in modest surroundings to poor parents who couldn't even afford a room for the night. They're met by astrologers who weren't particularly that esteemed in Jewish culture and shepherds. Um, those were the visiting dignitaries. He flees to Egypt as a refugee and returns to be re- raised in Nazareth. Not Jerusalem, the city of God. Not Bethlehem, David's royal city, Nazareth. Gets raised in Nazareth. Unroyal, ordinary, humble arrival and unremarkable early life. With very little said about his early life except for that one scene that we've got when he's 12 in the temple. This term Nazarene is referring to the promises that this promised king would not just be despised, but he'd be unrecognized, unlikely, not taken seriously not worthy of the title. And so we read this in Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That's Jesus' life, isn't it? He's just the child in the passage. He's uprooted from Bethlehem to Egypt as a refugee, then from Egypt to the parched ground as Nazareth. Nazareth, this obscure Galilean village in the limestone hills, overshadowed by a more significant city just four miles away called Zephyrus. Um, the max population of Nazareth is 480 people. And I was reading a dictionary that was talking about Nazareth this, this week and it called it a bit aloof. Jesus of Nazareth essentially means nobody from Nowheresville. It was pretty typical for like somebody to be given the Jesus of what the place where they are from. And for Jesus, he carried through the whole of his life, Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody from Nowheresville of probably no importance. And we see this throughout Jesus' life, don't we? In John 1, um, Jesus is calling his disciples, and Philip gets called by Jesus, and then Philip goes to Nathaniel all excited. We've found the promised king. The one that Moses, Law, and the prophets have wrote about. And, uh, and Nathaniel responds like this. Can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> That's his response. We found the promised king! Hmm, probably not if he's from Nazareth. Not that place. 
In John 7, Jesus is at a festival in Jerusalem, and he's kind of preached in quite a loud voice above a crowd about being the living water. And some are saying, this is the promised king, this is the Messiah. Until somebody else pipes up and says, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Really? David's offspring's from Bethlehem, isn't it? The royal city. Jesus came from unexpected origins. He appeared from nowhere, came from the wrong place. He didn't meet anybody's expectations. And so Jesus takes this lowly place in history for us and with us. He does things like submits to a sinner's baptism, like ours. He's nailed to a sinner's cross that belonged to us. And written on his cross is Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody from Nowheresville. He's a lowly nobody is what he's considered first, and it's the last what he became for us. In fact, this is how Jesus primarily describes himself, isn't it? Remember we read that book, didn't we, uh, recently, um, in house groups called Gentle and Lowly, because there's that verse um, which, when Jesus says that he's gentle and lowly or humble in heart. Why is, why is that good news for you and I? Well, if you identify as lowly, if life's circumstances have brought you low, as it were, if you've been humbled in life and by life, then King Jesus, the King of Kings, the High King of Heaven, understands what life is like for you. And it also means that he's accessible to you. Um, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And then this writer says this about those verses. He says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For, his, for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your burden is what qualifies you to come. No payments required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. Whether you're actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, labor, or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, heavy laden, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest. That you come in out of the storm, um, his desire outstrips even your own. Gentle and lowly, this, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, and willing. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires 
of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It's his very heart. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning. I like that. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning. You don't need to sort your life out. You don't need to wait for the storm to pass. You don't need to be good enough to come to Jesus. You don't need to have it all together. You don't need to meet a certain level of expectation. There's no bar to reach because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you blessed are the lowly? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are you if you're lowly. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. As thirdly, how does Jesus fulfill this promise of a humble king? Thirdly, he lives. Admired the queen for taking uh, the opportunity every Christmas day. She'd have a speech, wouldn't she, for about 15 minutes. And what's the one thing she would do at the end of every speech that she gave? Is she would talk about this Jesus of Nazareth and point people to him. The Queen's example is one of serving others um, and of recognising her own limitations and pointing people to the boundless reign of King Jesus. And in contrast to Queen Elizabeth, we hear in the passage, haven't we, recently, of Herod's self-centred reign coming to an end. It says in verses 19 and 20 of this passage that uh, Herod dies and we know from history that when, his, when he died, his kingdom was broken up into three and given to his three sons. His kingdom comes to an end too. And this son of his, Archelaus, who's in the passage, reigns over the area of Judea and Samaria and he continues Herod's tyrannical rule. And um, during a Passover festival, he, he murders, executes 3,000 celebrants. And so as a result, later he gets removed by Rome and instead, a prefect or a curator from, from Rome is installed. And Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who we later meet, is one of those prefects over that region. And later, Pilate, albeit reluctantly, not wanting to crucify Jesus, will continue in opposition to Jesus by handing him over to be crucified. Why? Why does Pilate hand him over? really because he's concerned for his own political position and his own security, just like Herod had been. Um, this historian Eusebius tells us that Pilate later on overreaches himself. He gets called to Rome for a trial. We don't know how that kind of finishes, but we do know that eventually he's forced to commit suicide for overreaching. And the lesson is this, that those who oppose Jesus whether it be Herod, whether it be uh, those who sought his life, or whether it be Pilate, die. Matthew says this later on in this same book. He says this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever exalts himself as king of his own life, ultimately concerned with their own rule and reign, like Herod, like Pilate, will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And in contrast to Herod and Pilate, Jesus, three days later, after he's died on the cross, rose again from the dead. And for 40 days he appeared to his subjects, reassuring them 
before ascending into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory and splendor. That's the outcome of Jesus' life, of humility. It says, Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says it like this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, nobody from nowhere's will, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, of Nazareth, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this simple lesson of the passage is that those who oppose King Jesus die, but those who humbly, like Queen Elizabeth, accept his reign and rule over their lives are reassured by his offer of eternal life in his kingdom. Because as it says many times in scripture, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And along with Justin Welby, we can say, may her late majesty Queen Elizabeth II rest in peace and rise in glory. Because if we accept Jesus' reign and rule over our lives, then we too get to rise in glory with her. And later we're going to break bread. I've got tables around the room uh, this morning. We're going to eat bread and drink wine to remember Jesus' humble death on the cross in our place, his resurrection to life, his ascension to heaven, and his ongoing reign, and his promise to return. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we do this, until he comes again. Part of the reason we eat the bread and drink the wine is because we're remembering together that this life isn't all there is. There is coming a time when King Jesus will come back to us and install a new heaven and a new earth and his righteous and just reign will last forever. And so when we break bread later, as we're praying together um, in little groups or in twos or threes, whatever it might be, Give thanks to God that Jesus has promised he's coming again and that his reign uh, will come eternally. So what's our response uh, to be to King Jesus, our humble king? Well, we do well to kind of follow Joseph's example, uh, which is the bulk of the passage and I haven't touched on at all. <laughs> but I, th- I felt like I, I probably should. And Joseph's example is a humble example of what it looks like to follow God and give our lives to King Jesus. So firstly, Joseph trusts God and follows his initial leading. And then God reveals the specifics. So if you notice in the passage, in the dream, the angel says, go to the land of Israel. And initially, Joseph kind of probably presumes that that's going to be Jerusalem or back to Bethlehem where they were previously based. But then he gets this more specific revelation in a dream and then he hears the political news um, and the situation with Archelaus' reign and he specifically goes to Nazareth 
in Galilee, which is an independent state away from the danger of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So trusting and following God's lead is trusting God for the specifics. And it means sometimes we step out on initial guidance without knowing the full picture. Does that make sense? This is something we did with the building, wasn't it? We kind of got a bit... We got a bit of an inkling that we might need a building in the future, so we went out on a prayer walk. We stopped outside Laura Ashley and prayed there for a bit. A prophetic word came and confirmed what some in the team were feeling, that we should explore this building a bit more. And it said, don't put your your foot on the brake, put your foot on the gas. And then as we've been going on, we're thinking, oh, we're just going to lease this building. But more revelation comes that specific, no, we need to sell off a loan here have the building, can you, can you buy the freehold? You step out in faith in the general revelation that God brings and in wisdom, and then God brings the specifics as you go. That's often like decisions in life, isn't it? You don't quite have the full picture. God doesn't tell you everything at the start, does he? He just says, land of Israel, and you go, oh, it's quite a big, that's a, that's a big area. Just, okay. So you start heading towards, aim for Jerusalem or Bethlehem. And then he goes, no, no. Galilee. And, you go. and that's often what following God is like for us. Secondly, Joseph trusts God until he tells him otherwise. It says, Joseph follows the leading despite it being a reversal of what God has said to him before. So if you see in, in chapter 2 and verse 13, God has previously said this, very similarly, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And that's often God's guidance to us and his leading, isn't it? Hey, until I tell you, do this. And that means we kind of constantly have to have an ear open to what he's saying to us, don't we? Because we think, yes, he said this in verse 13, but later in chapter 2 he's going to say this, the exact opposite. And that's what following God is like, isn't it? It's listening to the voice of God through the Spirit just gently leading and guiding us as we go on in life and keeping open to what he has next. Thirdly, Joseph trusts God by not questioning God's leading on the basis of previous promises. I mean, Joseph could have said um, things like, wasn't this Jesus meant to save people from his sins? Why is it then that we've got to be refugees? Why have we got to flee to Egypt? Why have we got to leave our home? And why for a long time? But he doesn't. He just trusts God with what he says. And fourthly, Joseph trusts God on the basis of revelation and wisdom. And they kind of confirm one another. So he hears from an angel in a dream. He has another dream, but he also reads the news and goes, the situation there is not great. And it confirms it. And that's often what God's leading in for us is like, isn't it? that God reveals something to us, maybe we could just get a sense, I think this is what God's saying to me. And somebody brings a prophetic word, or we hear something in the news, or something happens, circumstances of life, that go, oh yeah, that is the right thing to do. That's where God is leading me. The most appropriate response to humble King Jesus' reign is for us to trust him with our lives. And so we thank God for Queen Elizabeth, that this was her example, and we pray for King Charles as he begins his reign, that it would also be his.